Many of you know that I'm a big baseball fan. And one of the things I like about baseball is there are times when they have double headers. Did everybody see the sign? By the way, children's church dismissed. All right. Okay. Only children are dismissed. Okay. So when you have a double header, at least in the old days, you got two games for the price of one. Now, why am I telling you this? You're going to get a message today, and you're going to get a missions report today. Two for the, the price of and There's only one offering. All right, so we're, we're good. It's not normal for us, but this is our missions month, and we did this last week, and we're doing it this week, and then next week we'll kind of be back to you get one game for, for the price of your admission. So let's, let me begin with a story, then we'll have some, some prayer. I want to tell you a story about a, a woman who is terminally ill, she was walking down the beach, and she was carrying a revolver. She'd called a pastor and talked to him for a long time. She had many things going on in her life. She was, going, she was diagnosed with leukemia, and she was getting to the last stage. And the doctors told her that she, was, she was only 20 years old, that she had not much time to live. She checked herself out of the hospital because she just couldn't stand being in the hospital any longer. Her husband had left her. Her two-and-a-half-year-two-and-a-half-month-old baby had died, and a friend that she had had recently been killed in an auto accident. Her life was broken. She felt she had nothing to live for. She was filled with questions and doubts. And I finished the story at the end of that message. Doubts, I mean, they, they are issues that we face. They're like termites. They destroy, they eat away at, at our lives. We, we hold up well under them until storms come. Then our house begins to erode. During the time of ad adversity, we go through all kinds of questions. We have all kinds of thoughts. And there are times that our questions and our uncertainty can reach epidemic proportions. And one time that happens is when there are things that I believe should happen or should not happen, they happen. Another time is when bad things happen to good people. I mean, why does God allow that? Why did that bad thing happen to that person who so deeply loves Christ? And the effort, the, the impact of our doubts can be great, and they eat away at us. And doubt also increases when things that I believe should happen never happen. I mean, when I prayed and I expected God to say yes, and he said no. I mean, how many parents have sent their sons and daughters to war praying that he would bring them back? But for some of them, he said, no. And then there's a fourth situation where doubts grow. And that's when I believe that things should happen now, but they don't happen until much later. There are a few more difficult times in our lives to go through than when we pray and we pray and God says, wait, wait, wait. We struggle deeply when it seems that we pray to God and he seems to be not willing to answer us. The book of Hebrews we've been studying since the beginning of the year was written to a church of Jewish believers. And they were undergoing a time of, of severe persecution, which led them, them to experience some great doubt about their faith. Some of them were even considering going back to their heritage in Judaism. That brings us this morning, if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. It's a chapter that began, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, with a very strict, stern warning. And now as we get to the end, it shifts to encouragement 
and affirmation. The author of Hebrews is, is writing to this group of, of believers who are going through tough times, and, and they're hanging on for life. And this writer says, don't give up. Hang in there. Your faith in Christ is going to be your stability. And when your prayers are not answered as you expected them, when you're getting a no, when you wanted a yes, and a yes, when you wanted a no, when you're getting to be told, to be told wait, 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 you hang in there. And if we turn out of chapter 6, verse 13, it, it's almost like the writer asks, and do you think you have had a long time waiting? Okay, I'm going to give you an example. Let me tell you about a man named Abraham. Verse 13. We read, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abram, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Well, what's that all about? Let me remind you that last week we saw chapter 6 and verse 12. I'd like you to go back just one verse get our bearings in the setting. There, the author tells us, so that you, you may not be sluggish in your faith, but you would be imitators of those who, notice this phrase, through faith and patience inherit the promise. He says there, there are strong-minded, godly men and women who, who have said in the past, I'm going to stake my life on what God says. I'm going to trust him. He's my solid rock. I believe that God will be with me even if the rest of my world crumbles. And exhibit A is Abraham. Now, if you don't know your Bible, well, let me remind you that you will not be able to really understand what's going on here and what Abraham and Sarah had to trust God for. If you know the story, she was 65, he was 75, and God came and told him in his old age, your wife is going to have a baby. And I am swearing on that by my name. I promise you that your wife, Sarah, will give you a, a child. And after you have that child, that child will have children. And those children will multiply and, and eventually will populate the earth. All you need to do is wait. Abraham waited one year. And at 75 and 65, that's a long time. 76, 66, nothing happened. Ten more years. Oh, now we're way, getting way up there. Nothing happened. And at that low point, Abraham began to think, well, I guess what God meant is my, was that my heir, Eliezer, will be my, my heir. And when he thought that, God directly spoke to him and redirected his thinking. Chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 4, he says, This man will, will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven. Number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, to him, So shall your offspring bring. Now, we don't know how long it took Abraham to digest that, whether his response was immediate or whether it took some time. But we do have the record of one of the most phenomenal responses to a promise from God in all of Scripture. In verse 6, And he believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. He believed he'd become a father. He believed that his son would have children. 
He believed that his line would go on and on like the stars in the sky. This 86-year-old man at this point put his whole faith on what God promised him. And as a result, what did God say? You are righteous apart from any work you did. I'm going to tell you, if you study biblical theology, this is one of the greatest events in the history of salvation. And the Lord was so involved in this that he commemorated that with a sign. And he ordered Abraham to make sacrifices. Remember, set some animals, put, put them in a row, cut them into two pieces. And when the sun had set, God appeared to him. And it says there in Genesis 15, 17, like a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. That signified that this promise that God was making was unconditional. It didn't matter what Abraham did. He would be, God was committing himself to fulfill that promise. And we know, you know the story of Abraham. Did he have any lapses in faith? Yeah, he had some problems, right? But his faith over time grew to unimmeasurable proportions. More years passed. I'm going to cut the story a little short before Abraham and Sarah were given their dream and, and baby Isaac. How many, you know what Isaac means? Laughter. That's, that's what Sarah did when she was first told. That's a good name, Isaac. He's a laughter, joy. And when, so was that the end of the trials that Abraham's faith was in? It would suggest that the next trial was even harder than the first trial. According to Genesis chapter 2, God told him, now here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I'm going to tell you this. I cannot think of any more shocking command that God has given to anyone in all of the word of God than this one. I mean, try to imagine, mom and dads, the numbing horror that must have spread over Abraham's soul. I mean, that makes his ready obedience equally astonishing to us. I don't know if this is exactly how it happened, but let me use my imagination. Imagine the, the first glow of, of, of dawn the next morning. He gets up. He saddles his donkey. He gets his servants. He wakes up Isaac. He takes the wood. And they begin that gut-wrenching journey when he would offer up his only son. How in the world could he do that? How? Well, our text actually answers the question. He says, uh, he says on the third day, Abram left up his, lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to these young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. What's he saying? He was confident that he would come back alive. Now, if you think I kind of made that up, the author of Hebrews makes it even clearer. In chapter 11, verse 19, in the statement on faith, he says, He, meaning Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Can you imagine that? He had the trust that God would resurrect his son. He so believed that what God promised would come to pass, he was sure God would resurrect that boy. 
Now, most of the time, we leave the story right there. But we're going to go to the next section because that's what the author to Hebrews is, is using here in the text. Verse 16, God speaks to Abraham and he says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son. And I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And what I've highlighted in yellow is the exact phrase that the author of Hebrews picks up and uses in chapter 6. He swore, God made an oath that his promise would come true. So if you look over with me in your Bibles at, at chapter 6 and in verse 14, I highlighted the verse that he's quoted. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Quoting exactly Genesis twenty-two seventeen. Now this story is actually included in other portions of scripture and in Romans chapter 4 Paul gives us another insight Paul writes there he says in hope he believed against hope that's what Hebrews 6 is talking about it's talking about hoping when there seems to be no hope hoping when it seems to be clashing and then in verse 20 he says no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. So that, that's genuine faith. That, believe, that means that we believe God knows what he's doing even when we have to wait. And it's as firm and as sure in our lives, even if it takes 10 years or 30 years, or even if it doesn't happen in our lifetime. He hoped against hope with respect to the promise of God. And that's the lesson for the Hebrew church. That's the lesson God has for us at Kentwood Baptist Church. You see, while he makes you wait, by waiting and trusting, you give him glory. While you hear, wait, not, not yet, not yet, and you wait, you're giving God glory. Notice how Paul writes it. He's just fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith, and here's another quotation from Genesis was counted to him as righteousness. See, this passage, and my job this morning is to clearly tell you that know Christ. We need to have a faith that is so firm that it's going to be so strong, even in the uncertainties of life. You see, Abraham's faith gave him the ability to see things you can't see, to see things that he promised. See, Abraham saw a living God who was sovereign in all of his life. Abraham saw a sacrificed son resurrected and living on. Abraham's faith saw himself fathering a, a sea of, of humanity. And then he saw, by faith, the blessing for the world. And because of that, he could be patient, trusting God for years. I'm really not here tell you about Abraham's life. I'm really here to talk to you about you. This is literally a lesson for us about trusting God. Trusting God when things are not working out the way we think they should in our lives. How we can have hope 
because our faith is built on the solid rock of Christ. So let's transition here from Abraham to us, and let's notice, first of all, customs that we have. We have a custom that we use today that is alluded to here in verse 16. It goes back to promising on his name. So he says, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. I can think of one example that that happens regularly. Imagine we go to court, and you are a witness. And you are to put your left hand on the Bible, right? And the right hand, you're supposed to raise, and you're asked a question. Well, I, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. See, that you're swearing on the authority of the word of God, and you're expected, hopefully, to tell the truth. But why do we have that custom? I hate to tell you this because we're basically all liars. Okay? We don't tell the truth when it's convenient for us. So swearing by God's name hopefully assures us that we're telling the truth. In Judaism, it goes one step farther. When you make an oath and you do it taking God's name... If you violate your oath, you're also violating the third commandment, taking God's name in vain. So it's a very powerful picture here, taking an oath to seal your, your promise. Abraham had a promise that came from God. And that promise was based upon his name. So God does something that he didn't have to do. That's why I call it a concession of God. I want you to see how this ties in. So, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. What he's saying in simple words is he didn't need to do that. He did it to help bolster Abraham's faith. I mean, he, God's words are always going to come to pass, whether he makes an oath or doesn't. But to accommodate the, the, the weak faith, God swore his promise to Abraham on himself. That didn't make the promise any more secure, but it was for Abraham's own good to show him that God meant what he said. I want to explain one word here in verse 17. The English Standard Version uses the, in the phrase, so when God desired. Um, it indicates God made a decision to reaffirm his promise to Abraham. That was his desire. Looking up the, the original language, I think that's a little bit on the, the weak side. It's a little stronger than that. Literally, it's the word to purpose or to decide. As a matter of fact, the same word is used later on in the, in the verse, which is the unchangeable character of his purpose. In, in both Hebrew and in Greek, when you use two words that mean exactly the same thing, he purposed the purpose, guess what he's saying? You better take me seriously on this. I mean, this is, this is like a slam dunk. This is, this is serious. This was the deliberate exercise of his will. So God, what is God so adamant about that he purposed with a purpose, with an oath? See, with God, there's always this unalterable purpose. Verse 18 tells us that. Verse 18 reads, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. See, the oath that God took 
meant that his purpose would remain unchanged, ultimately fulfilled. Things would stay the way God promised it to be. Now, I'll be honest about me. Sometimes I've had doubts. Have you? Sometimes I wonder, God, what you're doing here doesn't make a lot of sense. God, I expected a no, and you said yes. Well, I was sure you'd say yes to that one, but you said no. And now you're telling me to wait. See, sometimes my puny little brain can't unravel what God's trying to do. It doesn't seem to fit in the character of God. I mean, you're looking at me like you've never been there. You know what that's like? I mean, life just doesn't make sense. So the writer is saying to us, I want to make sure you get this point, that rather than think logically, human logic, about your life, think, think biblically. Think theologically. I think that's good advice. When the bottom of your life seems to be dropping down and you can't wire it together, it makes no sense, make sure that your thought process is rooted in Scripture, not on your perspective. So let's go back to Hebrews 6.17. There are two theological facts, he says here. First, that there's an unchangeable purpose. And secondly, that that purpose is guaranteed with an oath. And in neither one does it change. In neither one does God lie. Now here, here's a point I like to make free of, free of charge to you. Uh, if you're dealing with somebody who's going through a difficult time, don't try to explain to them what God is doing. You have no idea what God is, is doing. Uh, if you did, you'd be as smart as God. And you're not that. So don't try to interpret the circumstances. I, I could tell you, I've got a couple of stories here I'll, I'll, I'll leave out. But I've, godly people who think they're doing good things hurt people by their so-called wisdom and what they have suggested. See, the only thing we can explain is what God tells us through Scripture, his unconditional purpose that is guaranteed with an oath. That's theological thinking. Well, I put it this way. Let, let me give you a, a good theological syllogism of, of biblical logic. Here's, here's the major premise. God is in control of our lives. Right? God's in control of our lives. Here's the minor pro- premise. Sometimes life's hard. Sometimes life's difficult. So guess what the conclusion is? God is in control of our hard times. Right? He's in charge of our painful times. You see, we're quick. We're quick to say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. When the money's coming in and when the health is good and when the family loves each other, when there's a promotion on the horizon, but we have a hard time believing that God is so good when things are tough. Well, God's in charge of the great times. He's in charge of the painful times. There's a, a praise song that has this phrase, and I love it. It says, you give and take away... My heart will choose to say, Lord, bless be your name. That, by the way, somebody said that long ago. That comes from the book of Job. So I'll look at now what the provisions we have from God. To get it from verse 18, I'm going to lift them up. I'm going to go rather quickly through them. They're right there in the text. First of all, he gives us strong encouragement. 
know, human thinking and logic is going to discourage you because it doesn't come out the way you want it to. But biblical thinking is there to give you strong confidence and encouragement. Believe it. Trust me. Strong encouragement. It's the opposite of discouragement. It says so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. And right there in this last phrase, I see the second thing, a refuge of hope. We might have a strong encouragement. We fled there for refuge. What's, what's the opposite of hope? Like despondency, despair. When you lay hold of, of the truth that life can be tough, that life can be hard, when God is in control, then you're going to experience a sense of hopefulness because you believe in the God who gives you hope, the God who fulfills his promise. And that's, by the way, why Scripture describes Abraham as giving glory to God in the waiting period. He's saying, you know, I'm sure he was saying, God, I can't figure out how this is going to happen. It doesn't make any sense, but I'm going to believe it because you're God and you said that, you promised that. See, my hope and, and your hope is based not on, on wishful thinking, positive thinking. It's based on the authority of the Word of God. And it's fleshed out for us in the New Testament through the ultimate blessing of Christ. He's, he's the hope that is set before us. The fact comes from we are in, in Christ as his children. And he's the son who fulfilled that Abrahamic covenant. Christ is the substance of our hope. Again, it's not in our own thinking. It's, it's not in what goes on outside. It's founded on the promise that God gives to us. And as a result, our hope has a double assurance. God promised it, and God swore by it. Everything that's promised to us from Christ, he will fulfill. We have his word. And then there's a third, third encouragement. We have this as a sure, steadfast anchor for the soul. An anchor for the soul. In the New Testament, the word anchor is used exactly this many times. So it's right here. This is the only place in all of Scripture we read the word anchor. A lot of songs come about using the word anchor, but this is the only place it's found. One of the songs I like about it, it's not in our hymn book, so we didn't use it. It's, it goes this, this way. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure as the sea billows roll. And I, I used to have a song leader who would go roll, make a sea roll like five times before we move on in the song. Okay, it's an anchor for the soul. It gives us some security. At the end of World War II, the, the Japanese surrendered, and a naval vessel was approaching uh, Yokohama Harbor. As they got close to the harbor, the ship stopped and set, stayed there. They had to wait for a little Japanese tugboat to come out and help them maneuver through the harbor. You know why? There's still landmines in, in the harbor. See, the, the Holy Spirit is saying here, he's not talking about anchors. He's not really talking about ships. He's talking about what Christ does when your life falls apart, what he promises to do. We have this sure, steadfast anchor hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What's he, what's he talking about curtains here? What's, what's the inner place? Uh, quickly, in Jewish worship, 
They worshiped at the tabernacle originally. They had a couple of rooms, and the most significant room was the Holy of Holies. And in that room, I believe the Shekinah glory shone. And inside that room, there was an ark, a small chest. And in that chest, there, upon that chest, there was a, a grail on top, a golden cherubim on each side, wings folded in front of them. And that grail was called, it's called the mercy seat. It's the place there that the priest would come in with that saucer of blood every day of atonement, one time a year. And he'd walk in and he would pour out the blood on that mercy seat. An annual event. I mean, it was the day in Israel. And people, if you read the tradition, people literally held their breath outside because they hoped that the high priest would come back alive. See, the Jews who read this verse understood all of that. This is the hope we have as an anchor for the soul. Verse 19 goes on and says, it's a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When we get back to Hebrews in chapter 7 and 8 and 9, we're going to look at how great Christ is, how he's the best, because he's the best priest who's offered the best sacrifice. So today we have Jesus, and notice what it calls him there. It calls him our forerunner, pro-dramas. The job of a forerunner is to explore the way for someone else to follow, to follow, to prepare the way, to show the path. Christ, our pro-dramas, has gone ahead to prepare the way for us. And now he comes and he's leading us toward him. And he's saying to you and to me this, this morning, he's like, come on in. Find here the, the rest that you need, the relief that you need from all of the blasts of, of doubt. See, doubt is always going to attack you. It's going to say, you're alone. You're by yourself. Nobody else really cares about you. Nobody else can, can help you. Hebrews is saying, you have one. He's gone before you. He, he cares about you. He's standing in your place. He sits next to the Father. He represents your needs to him. If you're a child of God, listen to me carefully. There's nothing at all that you will have to endure where Christ is not touched by that, where he leaves you. He's always there with you. And I also want to tell you this. We've been studying in, in our men's and women's Bible, studying about lament and, and sorrow. What I'm telling you this morning may not be for you directly today, but it may be a message you can share with other people. See, when you come and you minister and you talk with people who have come to the end of their life and they're filled with despair, logic's not going to help them. Explanation's not going to help them. As a matter of fact, sometimes logic backfires. I read a, from a book called The Bereaved Parrot, Parent by Harriet Schiff. Her son died during an operation to correct a congenital heart malfunction. She was Jewish and her rabbi told her this. She said this, I know this is a painful time for you. I know that you will get through it all right because God never sends us more of a burden than we can bear. Have you ever heard somebody say that before? We, we say that kind of thing. So God only let this happen to you because he knows you were strong enough to handle it. You know what she said? Boy, I wish I'd been a weaker person. Then my son would still be alive. See, why don't you using that kind of logic that God doesn't give. Logic breaks down. 
There's mystery that happens in our life. There are things that you can't explain. What all God asks you to do is to choose to do what? Trust. Choose to trust him. I mean, if you can untangle all of the complexities of life, why would you need faith? You got, you got it all figured out. But you don't have that. You have sight. We need faith. But faith demands us to be patient and wait for God to work. So dealing with doubt, I'm going to summarize these quickly. I've got three principles, three applications. First, God always speaks the truth. Is that right? That's right. You might want him to say no, but yes is the truth. You might want to now, but wait is, is the truth. See, doubt says, you believe God? I mean, our culture is like, you're, you had backward, stupid, living in a different century that you believe in a God? Look what's going on. God will always speak the truth. Got a long story that I'll summarize with just a couple sentences. This is written from a prisoner who survived Auschwitz, talking, being interviewed about how they endured that. And here's what here's what this this person said. It never occurred to me to associate the calamity we we were experiencing with God. It never occurred to us to blame Him or believe in Him less or cease believing Him at all because He didn't come to our aid. Listen to this. God doesn't owe us that or anything. We owe our lives to him. Okay? And I guess if you could say that after being through Auschwitz, I don't think any of us have gone through anything close to that. He tells the truth. And we're on the winning side. We're, we're not going to be, be defeated. What does God promise us? Don't have time. But look at Romans 8. Look at the great future we have. It's a promise. It's going to happen. We're on his side. God swears that with an oath. He won't change. And third, Christ always will be with you. That's because, as we've seen in Hebrews, he's the best of all. He's going to be with you at all times. I don't know what you're going through, but we're, Pastor Larry's already prayed for some trials that are going on now. Some of you gone through loss of loved ones. Christ is with you. Now, let me just finish my story about the woman who was walking down the beach holding a revolver. She spoke to her pastor, and he calmly tried to, to speak to her. He said there were times when, after he said something, there would be 45 seconds, maybe even 60 seconds, where nothing was, was said. She spoke of taking that revolver and ending her life. And she was asking him questions about suicide. You know, will, God, will God forgive me if, if I do this? He spoke very quietly, and he spoke only about one thing, Christ. Christ, the need to trust Christ. He didn't promise that she'd be healed. And she had been told she might not even live the rest of the month. He just talked to her about Christ. After a while, she hung up on him. About an hour later, she called back. And a friend previously had given her a New Testament. So she decided after talking to him that she better open it up. She told the pastor this. I said, I started reading it, and the first part of the New Testament seems to be a biography, and the second part seems to be some, some letters on how to do what the biography is saying. I thought, man, she got that in an hour? I mean, she's like better than most theologians. I don't know. She got that exactly right. So she said, I decided to give myself without reservation to Jesus Christ. Then she said, I'm still afraid. 
I still have doubts. I don't know what tomorrow will bring, but I gave my life and trusted in Christ. And I'm going to trust him no matter what happens. And why? She probably didn't know that, but because her anchor was rooted in Christ. He was the source of her security. And what Christ has promised, if he's gone away and he promised his disciples, he would do what? He'd come back again and he'd take us to be with him. And there are probably some people here this morning, and maybe, you, maybe you're going through some difficult times. Maybe you're thinking about some thoughts you've never entertained before. I don't have any other answer to you but to point you to Christ and to promise you that he will be your source of strength. It might continue to go bad in human terms, but I can promise you he'll be the anchor that never leaves you in stormy weathers as you trust him. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for making provision for our need, our need for salvation in Christ, trusting him as the one to get us to heaven. Father, he's our need today as we go through times of difficulty. And as we continue to worship you this morning, help us to commit ourselves to following Christ, to leaning on him, in our difficult times. And Father, help us, as people who know you, to, to use these truths to encourage those surrounding us that, that need to be encouraged. We thank you in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. I invite the ushers to come forward for this morning's offering. And as they make their way forward, we will continue to worship in song.
And this is the message that they are proclaiming in C.A.R. So uh, we've been excited to hear from them since they, they got in the parsonage a few months ago. So I'm not going to take up any more of their time. Welcome. God bless you. Thank you so much that you're here with us. Thank you. Yes. Well, I don't know about you, but when I sit for a while, I my mind starts shutting off. So... Let's invite everybody to stand up and just stretch for a minute. Okay? All uh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Roll the shoulders. Uh, okay. Now we can sit down again. Well, first of all, we want to say thank you so very, very much for your absolute stunning kindness in providing the parsonage for us to stay. And we walked in, and there was a pantry full of stuff and it's just been a real marvelous time not only having the place to stay and the food to eat uh, most of it's gone by now of course so but just the fellowship uh, the the wednesday prayer meetings that we jump on with that skype or with not skype it's um, zoom the zoom prayer meetings we jump in, jump in on that and we got invited out to a ball game and just feeling connected and that's important for us missionaries when we are gone for a length of time. We come back. We need some things that will help us feel reconnected here. So thank you very, very much. I am going to give you a quick minute and a half overview of where we are and what we're doing there in the Central African Republic if our short video here will cooperate. Yep, there we go.
our objective is to give us all an opportunity to stop and praise the Lord for what he's doing. What he's doing in our lives, what he's doing through us, what he's doing through you too. So our three main ministries could be summarized by these three words. Peabot Seminary, Bethany Baptist Church, and our grandkids. Uh, you would love to tell about your grandkids, but I have the microphone, so I can talk about my kids. So Feebot Seminary. The seminary was actually started in 2011, and we didn't have any facilities. We had enough teachers. We put together a curriculum. Um, where are we going to have our, our school? Well, it started on the property where we live, there in the capital city of Bangui. So... You're looking at one of the classes. We're having a prayer time out in the yard. But this is actually where we live. So our residential property for the last 11, 12 years has been the school campus. But the school is also able to buy a 25-acre piece of property just on the edge of town. And so we moved all the school operations to the campus for the beginning of last school year. So for one year, they have been on this property. Uh, over the course of the last five years or so, the school was able to build three duplexes, duplexes to house student families. So we built three duplexes, put in a well so they have some water, and we had a donor in the United States pay for electricity. We hope that it'll get in tomorrow. No, not tomorrow. Sometime this, this, uh, this, this month or next month. So it's been like eight months that the electric company has said, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. We've been paid for it. Uh, welcome to Africa, right? So we have a good group of teachers because when you're going to do a, a school, you need facilities and you need teachers. Well, one of my special teachers is my wife. So she struggled with depression for many years, uh, following some of the wartime things that we were involved in. So she was not able to be involved a whole lot. But over the last couple of years, the Lord has healed her, and she is very involved right now teaching in our women's department. We have two levels of, of the school, of the seminary. We have a degree program, and we have a certificate program. Because in the Central African Republic, most of you ladies would not have gone much higher than, like, sixth grade. So when the men are high school graduates and the wives are fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, tenth grade, that kind of a level, uh, the school, because of the academics, we say, okay, we're going to do two different programs. And the women are mainly the ones that are in the certificate program and the men are mainly the ones that are in the degree program. So we have both men and women teachers. But when you have teachers and you have facilities and you have a curriculum, uh, what have I left out? Uh, you have to have students. So the Lord has been giving us anywhere between four and ten uh, new students each promotion. And because we didn't have facilities, we have been doing every other year having a class, uh, having a, a new freshman class. Because of other things that happened, we, uh, we promoted the, the people that went through the third year. We promoted them. Uh, so this school year, we will only have a freshman and sophomore class. The Lord gave us, the Lord gave us eight 
no, seven men for the freshman class this year, and the sophomore class, you're looking at the class right now. When you come to school from 8 o'clock in the morning until 1 o'clock in the afternoon, the classes are going to be in your living room. So after 1 o'clock, you, the student who's living in that duplex, you have your living room back. But during those classroom times, uh, that living room is for the, the class that's meeting. I'd like to talk a little bit about David Taga here. He is our first true international student. International, well, the name of the school is Faculté Internationale Baptiste de Théologie. In English, it's, it's uh, International Baptist Theological Seminary. And we said international when we founded the school because we said I, we really would like to recruit students and teachers, potentially, from any French-speaking country. Well, David Taga is from the Chad. Wonderful. Our first international student. Let me tell you a little bit about David. David was born into a Muslim family. And when he was in his early teens, there was an African pastor who was pass, passing through his village and sharing about Jesus Christ. He got curious. The Lord put it on his heart to go find out more. Long story short, he trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior, the first one in his village, the first one in his family. Now, in Muslim families, if somebody gets saved and everybody else is in traditional Islam, somebody gets saved, what happens to that person? Two choices. Either the family is responsible, usually it's the dad or the brothers, the family is supposed to kill that person. Alternatively, you expel that person from your family. He was expelled from the family. He went and lived with the pastor. The pastor taught him, got him into a Bible institute. He got training to be a pastor himself. He went to the north part of the CAR, which is a heavily Muslim, er, to the Chad, I mean, uh, a heavily Muslim area, and he started a church and built it up. Well, 10 years, 11 years later, he's praying, and he says, I feel the Lord would have me go on for further training. Okay, where do you go for further training? There's not a whole lot of options. And he'd heard about this new school that started in the Chad, uh, excuse me, in the Central African Republic, in Bangui there. Uh, yes, it's a Baptist school. Yes, it's, it's fundamental. Yes, uh, it, it reflects our values. I believe that the Lord would have me go to that school. So he left his three older children. He has eight children. He left the three older ones in the Chad to finish their high school degree. And he went to the Central African Republic with his five kids. Again, long story short, he crosses the border into the Central African Republic. His eight-year-old daughter gets sick and dies. Now, if you believe the Lord wants you to do something and a bad thing happens, like your child dying, what's the conclusion? And his family called him from the Chad and said, this is a clear indication God does not want you to go to seminary. He said, no, the Lord wants me to go to seminary, and I am intending to follow the Lord no matter what. He buried his child at dark, and by dawn he was on the bus to come to seminary. We are praying for more people like this, people who will follow the Lord no matter what, even as we heard in the message this morning. God sends difficult things into our lives 
Sometimes it's to help to reinforce our faith, and sometimes it becomes a story that we can share at Kentwood Baptist Church and say, look at this kind of faith. Wouldn't we love for the Lord to do this sort of thing in our life, to keep our hearts on flame for him? So we're asking you to pray for David and for the other seminary students and wives there in the CAR. The end of last school year, this was the group picture, all the teachers, all the students. So we are about, let's see, we have 11 in the degree program and we have 12 in the certificate program, the women's program this year. Switch gears a little bit, tell you about Bethany Baptist Church. Now, in 2013, the, uh, the deacons of the church came to me and said, well, you've been involved with our church for on and off as a guest speaker. Uh, we're a new church plant, and we can't afford to pay an African pastor. Would you please be our pastor? Well, nice to be wanted, right? So we prayed about it, and we said, yes, okay. So the Lord gave, us, gave me a good group of leaders, and we outgrew, by God's grace, we outgrew this building twice. And finally, the leadership said, well, Pastor, can't we put together a permanent building? And when I say we, we outgrew the church twice, the original walls were palm leaves. Then we did mud bricks, sun-dried mud bricks. And finally, they're saying we need a cement brick building. So this is what the building looks like today. We're very thankful for what the Lord has done. Now, you've got to understand, in the Central African Republic, there's nowhere where you can go to borrow money for a building project. You build as you have cash. So it has taken about six years to put the foundation in, to put the walls up, to put the, to put the ceiling on, and the floors are still dirt. So that's the next fund, uh, fundraising project that we will be doing. If you don't have people in your church, what's the sense of building a building? And where do you get people from? Well, again, by God's grace, the Lord has enabled us to have two baptisms a year over the last several years. We'll do usually in the spring and usually in the fall, and that ranges anywhere between 10 and 40 people that are getting baptized. Now, aren't you glad that you support a missionary there who is winning all these people to the Lord? Guess what? I just lied to you. This missionary is doing his part, but part of what I'm doing is also encouraging and training the people to talk with their friends, to talk with their neighbors, to talk with their kids. And most of the people that are led to the Lord, I asked them in the baptism interview, I said, how did you come to know the Lord? And most of them will say, well, this deacon, or my dad, or my mom, or something like that. So thank you, God, that there are people who are coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you just a short video of one of the exciting things that happens in my church because we have several different, uh, different movements. We have young people's movements. We have women's movements. And this is one of the young people's movements.
Now, if you want to be part of a really alive, exciting church with a lot of things going on, move to the Central African Republic, okay? And if you can't do that, say thank you. Because there's countries where the, gospel, the, the opportunity to share the gospel, it's closing. It's harder and harder for people to come in and, and just openly share. But there in the CAR, very open. In fact, uh, about a year ago, some of the people in the church started petitioning and saying, Pastor, can we start a French-language church? Well, okay, let's study this out. All right. Well, last fall, we started a French service. So uh, you come to church at, at 7 a.m. So from 7 to 8.30 is French-language church. For those of you who know French, good enough to enjoy a French-language service. 9 o'clock until noon is the Sango language service for those of you who know the Sango language. We also get to do fun things. How do we get around there in the CAR? One way has been we use our motorbike. We use the local transportation system, which is motorbike taxis or regular taxis, or uh, we have a, a small car that we get around in also. And when we were getting ready to come back to the States this time, one of my pastor friends, his motorbike was stolen. Now, over there, if you are very poor, you've finally been able to scrape together enough to buy a motorbike or bicycle, and it gets stolen, it's like having somebody steal all the vehicles out of your driveway, and there's no bus line that comes by you, and you've got to get, a, get out and walk pretty much wherever you want to go. So I heard about this, and talked about it with Paula, I said, you know, when our car was stolen, there was a deacon in the area that gave us the motorbike that you're looking at here. And we are going to the States, and the Lord has provided a car for us. Um, can we donate our motorbike to this pastor? Have you ever seen somebody drive a motorbike into a church? You're going to see that. Of course, I told the pastor ahead of time, this is what I want to do. He said, yeah, sure, let's do this. Because you do fun things. You do things that, that bring rejoicing as a group, but things that will bless individuals as well. And we are just so privileged to be able to do this there in the Central African Republic, doing a variety of things to minister with people and to people. So I'm going to turn this microphone over to Paula. And she's going to talk a little bit about some of the women's things she's involved in. Yeah. So, Bethany Baptist Church actually has two women's clubs, organizations that I am involved in. They meet on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And in the picture here, you see the two different uniforms of the ladies. The blue are women of truth, and the skirt and white blouse are the Tabitha ladies, and they each have their own, um, is Devise an English word? They have a slogan, a motto, um, a theme verse, special songs for each of these different groups, and 
They love to dress together. They each have their own uniform. And you will see that depending on the different celebration or the meeting that you're going to, they will unite together and all buy a cloth that matches. Just as John mentioned, the clothes that we're wearing today was from a pastor and wives conference that we attended. And yes, the, the pastors and wives from our region all wore the same cloth. And the ladies really enjoy that. It shows unity together. One of the things that the women of truth do, not only weekly, weekly meetings, monthly rallies, this is actual, uh, actually a national conference where all three women's groups met. And yes, they do gather around the flagpole and sing the national anthem it's really something to hear all of these women singing the national anthem of car one of the other groups that i was just recently elected into is the outfit in pink this group of eight ladies is overseeing the schedules of these other three groups because they each have their own meeting weekly they have monthly rallies, fundraisers, prayer meetings, conferences, and so you don't want to double book things. So these eight women are in charge of making sure everything is going correctly and they're staying true to the different rules that they have. And I was elected to be a part of this. They actually had an installation service for us eight ladies thus we all had the same outfit and here they are bringing us into the auditorium being escorted by these three ladies groups see if you recognize the tune guess because it was a somber occasion and the church building was full that they didn't do the live and peppy marching in with their fancy footsteps but they do that too so I got to be a part of this national group of eight ladies overseeing all of the other groups John and I enjoy visiting in the neighborhood actually one of the deacons has a nice house that is secure with a wall around it and we've gotten to be good friends with Gideon and Nancy and several weeks we would attend the afternoon prayer meeting one of them is on their property and then we would spend the night at their house they had a special bedroom set aside for us but in between the prayer meeting and spending the night we would walk through the neighborhood I almost said Cartier but that's a French word too so 
we would walk to the different church members' homes and visit. And boy, do the people love that. Here's these two white people dressed like Africans and speaking their language. And what are they going to do? You just never know what we will be served at the home, um, how the conversation will go. But everybody in the neighborhood sees what's going on. They all seem to know. Uh, one of the other meetings that I will sometimes attend is a deacon's meeting. Deacons and deaconesses. Um, more often than not, I will attend their bi-weekly prayer meeting in people's homes because there you get a meal. And one of those, the, the day of the week that they have their prayer meeting is also the Tabitha day of the week. So I will go from the Tabitha meeting over to the deacon's prayer meeting and get a meal. And John and I would ride home together. So we are heavily involved, and we both enjoy loving and serving the people there that God has called us to. This was the installation when John was installed as the new pastor. Well, our third ministry is grandkids. This is Edmund and his family. Look closely at those children. Two of them are not his, but God gave him seven children, he and his wife. And since his parents died when he was young, he asked if his children could call us grandma and grandpa. And we were honored. Now, we didn't really know what that meant at the time, other than we had a new title. But when their kids grew up, graduated from high school, and wanted to further their education, they moved, one by one, to Bangui and lived with us. And we were able to help them get their start in life and realize their dreams. That was pretty special. Michael went to France and got a degree in theology, theological degree, and God did something really special for him. He gave him a wife, a Christian gal, and just this past June, the day before Mother's Day, she had a baby, Ezekias, our first great-grandchild. Um, if God brings Michael and Vanessa to mind, they are looking for new housing. So you might remember them in prayer. Both Junior and Aliel are working three hours north of where we live at an orphanage, um, Jonathan's House for Orphans. He works in the clinic as an RN, a state nurse, where he got his training, and Aliel kind of as their business manager because she pays all the employees. Now, I don't have all the details of how many employees they have, but I do know she does a fantastic job at keeping the business side of that orphanage running. The, la the fourth one that came to live with us is Celestin. And 
He's the one on the far right with the glasses. When we asked him, what do you want to be? He said, I believe God wants me to be a cardiologist. Whoa, cardiologist. He began to do research where he could go to get that training and we're at the airport here sending him to Dakar, Senegal. It's an eight-year program and we're footing most of the bill. His family is helping. But when the three oldest, Michael, Junior, and Aliel, were living with us, we bonded just like a family. And that was pretty special to have your three grandkids living near you or in your home. And we are thankful to God that he allowed us then to help them realize their dreams and further the spiritual footprint there in CAR. Good. Let's try to finish up real quick. We could talk for another hour here very easily, but I want to mention that we use our home for hospitality. Uh, Africans come in and do meetings in our home. We also have a very small expat uh, that's foreigners, uh, white people that, are, that, that don't grow up there. We have a very small community of, of uh, American or European friends. We get together now and then. One of our good friends is Donna Bixby. She is a MK, and the Lord has used her to return to CAR, and she is actually heading up the, the orphanage that is three hours north of us. This is not a Baptist Mid-Mission missionary, but we promote it because it's on our Baptist Mid-Missions property that we deeded to the church association. Our best friends, Charlie and Gay Jewell, they worked with us for all of our career, and Charlie is three years older than I am, so our mission says, well, when you're age 70, you're supposed to retire. So they left last year, and they are officially retiring this, this December. So that means that how many Baptist Mid-Mission missionaries are left in the country to serve the Lord there? You're looking at them. When I was a kid, there were 50 households were the last ones. And we don't see anybody on the horizon that wants to come as missionaries there. Um, so we're very, we're very delighted that the Lord has us involved with the seminary and with the church so that we can work with them to build up their own future missionaries and leadership. We are in the States. We came for four months. One of the reasons is to share a report with the churches, and the other is to spend time with our moms. Now, this is a God thing. Both of our moms are living in the same place for their retirement. So this is their last move before heaven, and we have opportunity to go there almost every day and sit and, and just enjoy being with them. So you ask yourself, why would missionaries leave their parents and go to a poverty country like Central African Republic? Faith. That's one of the words. Because we believe that God's team is going to win the victory and we want to be part of his team and do what we can as his servants. Another word that you could use is love. Love for the Lord and the love that the Lord gives us 
for being there with the people there. A third word that you could use is the word purpose. This kind of giving of our lives to the Lord is fulfilling for us, and it is beneficial for the people that we are working with. So, again, we're thankful for what the Lord has done. How can you be involved? How can you help us? Well, there are several things you can do to pray. I think most missionaries, when they share a report or they share about their ministry, they're, they're asking you, please, pray. So I'm going to get there. You have just a few bullet points here. I want to mention the top one. Pray for John and Paula because there's going to be some significant transitions in the next three years. Why three years? Because I'm 67. And our mission says when you hit 70, you're supposed to retire. If mind and body are okay, they'll give permission to extend. So three years from now, we'll be back and we'll tell you, are we needing you to continue support because we are able to continue ministry there, or are we going to pull the plug and stop? We don't want to stop. But if we are hitting the retirement age, our mission says, number one, we, the mission agency, do not want to be property holders in the country with no resident missionaries. That means that our property is up for sale. Sometime in the next year, we expect that to happen. And the new people that we're negotiating with, they said, when we make the final payment, will you leave the property? We said, okay, that's what you want. So that's another transition. Where are we going to live? Well, we'll find that out as we go along. We don't know that right now. So... One of the other transitions is that I'm president of the seminary and we need to work with our African board in order to transition to have somebody else as the president. How's that gonna happen? Who's gonna be the next one? These are all exciting things that will be told you later. Third transition, I'm pastoring a church. And uh, if I'm supposed to retire, I tell my leadership, you know, you folks, I love being your pastor, and you want me around, but we need to prepare for the day that I'm not here permanently. So over the next three years, we'll transition, and we'll look for somebody else to be a pastor, and then I will step back into probably an emeritus kind of a role. Probably do that with the seminary as well. So praying for the FIBOT seminary. Uh, there's some financial needs there with the scholarships for the students that we need. Because the students, even though we only require $1,500 per year per student for tuition, most of them are only able to pay at the most half of that. So we are committed as a, as a school board that we are looking for support for scholarships and for the school to subsidize what the students are able to do. And we also need to build more student housing. We need to build a classroom structure. Um, we need to continue to develop the campus. So those are all things that we're praying about and asking people to pray about as well. Support. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you that what you're doing supports FIBOT. Thank you that what you're doing is helping to train people, men and women, for the, for the glory of the Lord there in the Central African Republic. One of the other things you can do to stay involved is just stay in touch. Uh, if you want to, to click on Facebook, 
Don't click on mine. Click on Paula's, okay? She's the one that goes, uh, gets involved with that. And another way is just be involved with our, our regular prayer letters that we send out. Our goal is every three to five weeks we send an update. And we don't put it in the mail anymore. This is all by email. It's a joke on our name. We call it a Dan and Blog. Some of you have read that. Some of you already get it maybe. But if you want to get it personally, there's a, there's a form in the back, um, a sign-up sheet in the back, where you can sign up for receiving the Dan and Blog into your own email. Does the church send that out or post it someplace? Okay, so that's another option. If you don't want things cluttering up your inbox in, in your, your email, just check the church. But I'm just encouraging people to do that. So, yeah, thank you. This is what the Lord is doing. This is how the Lord is keeping us excited. This is how the Lord is keeping us involved. And thank you for your involvement and your service, bringing glory to the Lord as well. Pastor Bob, I believe that you are going to pray to finish up. Oh, there you are. Thank you. Let's stand up and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the servants you choose and, and you send. And thank you for their ministry. We thank you for John and, and Paula, for their family, for their ministry, for the opportunity they've had to make a great impact on so many lives. We thank you, Lord. I thank you as one of the pastors for the support of this church, for the willingness to stand behind them in, in prayer and in finances and encouragement. And thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to get this report this morning. We thank you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and sit for just a minute if you'd like. This is the month of October, and you may know it's also known as Pastor Appreciation Month. So, Pastor Bob's already up here with me, so I'll ask Larry, Pastor Larry, and Naomi to come join us up here. And while they're coming up here, I have a question for all of you. Do you appreciate your pastors? <laughs>